Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to The Private Collector. Hang on to your hats. Things are about to get weird. The girl tossed and turned in the huge carved bed, throwing the mountains of pink satin sheets and posh blankets onto the floor. Her arms flailed wildly, and she screamed, but didn't wake up. I watched all this silently from the shadows. You could have been shoulder to shoulder with me, and never even known I was there. The fact I'd made my way into the swank joint past the bank of uniforms at the front desk and paraded right up the grand staircase was a testimony to my growing expertise in all things uncanny and arcane. What I was looking for was tied up with a red ribbon under the bed in a bamboo trunk with brass handles and trinkets from a dozen ports of exotic call, all the places the girl and her pals had danced for the swells and made pretty in their skimpy little get-ups and funny shoes. I'd known it was there the minute I'd walked into the room, knew what it looked like and why she'd hid it there knew it because, well, I knew it like I knew all kinds of stuff these days I shouldn't have been privy to. He'd given it to her, the guy who was going to make her famous, give her a chance, make her a big star, and all the other things guys like that tell girls hoping to make it big. Only, this guy was worse than those other guys. He was a sorcerer, bad juju of the worst sort, and I was here to put him out of business then put him down if I got the chance. Before I went to grab the trunk and rifle through it for my prize, I glanced in the big gold mirror on the wall. There was nothing there. I sure wasn't used to that weirdness yet. Staring myself dead in the eyes, old Frank Enfield just wasn't there to be seen. Oh, I was there all right. I wasn't some shade or a dream sending or anything like that. I was there in the flesh and blood already, such as it was. I just didn't cast any reflection in a mirror anymore. Could come in handy sometime, I suppose. We'd see. I held my hands up to my face. I could see those all right, thanks to Martine's care package of the powders and creams and concoctions she used to make herself look even prettier than she was on natural. Of course, it made me look like I'd done my time lollygagging on a beach somewhere, what with our different roots of origin at all. But it worked in case my general tendency these days, not to be noticed, wobbled a bit, or someone in the know of things, Hainton Hex and Juju, happened to be nosing around in my direction. The sound of some cool jazz and the siren wail of a smooth trumpet from a bar down in the corner made me think of New Orleans, 
million miles away back stateside. And stateside always made me think of the librarian. Two weeks earlier. I didn't let the grass grow under my feet before taking up the librarian's orders to do a full reconnaissance on his digs. Before the library was open the next morning, I was already nosing my way through the vast collection of books and curiosities and odds and ends that curiosity didn't even begin to describe. There was all the books I'd retrieved for him, Packard's hymn book and the black pyramid box that held the ashes of the comic book from hell. There was the paperback edition of the Necronomicon, pub date somewhere in the future, worthless in itself, but a placeholder, a cipher or a shade of the real thing that existed far away in the Arabian desert, growing out of the flesh of a once-living man. The one book, the one I got off old Coyote out west, well, that one was writ on my own hide and etched on my bones. That was going nowhere, and I was still figuring out the ABCs of that there little dime novel. There was the kid's fairy tale book written by a long-dead ninja, and a few other collectible reads besides. Some of these brought back memories I'd just as soon leave buried, while others brought a smile to my lips as I leafed through their pages. Digging through the tall wood box and glass cabinets, I spied the usual bric-a-brac of the trade, some of which I carried around with me in my own hex kit. Tarot cards of a dozen varieties, wands, amulets, daggers from a hundred places, bundles of smelly stuff and boxes of oils, hanging lamps with strange symbols etched on their surface, parchments new and used along with wax and quill pens. There was whole cabinets filled with powders and woods and petrified growing things and jars with other things curing in them, and mortars and pestles for grinding it all down to their base elements. Deeper into the librarian's lair, there was wide iron cabinets set with hex locks and filled with cut crystal jars that flickered and danced with some kind of green witch light, and I thought of the jars lining the walls of the Baron Sandy's place down in the catacombs beneath New Orleans, jars that wailed and moaned and cried out curses in a hundred tongues, and some in tongues not human at all. Listening, I could hear a strange whimpering rising from some of them, and a call for help that felt like a hot forked tongue licking my ear and caressing my innards, and I moved on. Beyond the row of cases holding the hex pots was a wall of masks. I just kept on walking, finally seeing his desk sitting way off in the distance, when in my previous calls it had only been a few feet from the front door of his lair. On the wall of masks was things that looked to be African, all kinds of Asian ones I had no idea about, and some things staring down at me I just plain didn't want to think about. There was animal heads painted up and dangling with beads and sticks and fetishes. Some familiar, some not. There was heads of things I'd never seen on this planet or anywhere in Juju and hoped to God I never would. Things with horns and snouts and pinchers and teeth where there shouldn't be anything like teeth at all. And mouths, too many of them. And appendages on things that should only have fins and scales. I didn't want to describe most of the stuff I saw down there, or even set it down on paper. Right in the middle of all this was a coyote mask made out of one of the critters itself, with its hide and tail dangling down almost to the ground. I'd noticed something like eyes staring out at me from most of the masks where they hung. But this one, there was what looked to be the librarian's own gaze, staring down at me, and I just 
nodded and kept on with my business. There was just too much here to rightly give an account of. Some of it I had no clear idea about. I mean, gnarled up sticks and carved up bone usually served only one kind of purpose. Calling things out of the nowhere to make privy counts or do things you got no damn business taking on yourself. Cups and jars or anything of the like was for holding wine or flying potion or seeing spell conjure juice. Or maybe even blood in some circles. Or the souls of the dead and damned. Daggers and knives and swords. Anything with an edge on it, real or ritual, was for calling the powers to you. Or for cutting things you wanted dead or got rid of like in the world of the here and now. If it looked like any kind of coin, new or old, well, that was for spending, here or there, one way or the other. It was all easy enough to cipher. I was weaned on most of this kind of business with Doug and Martine and Maurice at Doug's mama's knee, but I'd be damned that the librarian, true to form, didn't have a bigger and wilder collection as I'd ever seen, and a darn sight beyond, a fair amount of which... I had no damn idea what it was for. Then I came to the end of it. There was the desk, all right. Behind it was the tapestry I'd always figured was... Well, I'd never really paid much attention until it was pointed out to me. So I stood there, looking back over the last four years and all I'd learned and those I'd met. I wasn't the same snot-nosed Frankie boy who'd come slinking into town with his tail between his legs. No, sir. I'd almost been snuffed more than once, and as far as it mattered, that was a fair price to pay for what I'd gained, what I'd become, and how I'd traveled farther off the beaten path than most hardline old-school occultists ever did. But this was going to be something else. The librarian had said so, and I thought back onto the most uncharacteristic I'm sorry, Frank, he'd left me with before he disappeared out the door. Who was I kidding? I was a junkie for this stuff, and once turned, there's no going back. I knew I was going through that door, knew it before I ever came down here, but I was following orders, something I'd learned by now not to question if I valued my hide. But I was still respectful. The old geezer crows had taught me that much. You don't know what's unknown, but it sure knows you. So, I fished the little silver key out of my pocket, yanked back on the tapestry, and unlocked the door, stealing myself for whatever was waiting inside to set me down and teach me a thing or two, or swallow me whole without preamble or apology. The door was heavy, and took a lot of elbow grease to drag it open. I was struck by a gust of dry air that hit me in the face with a thousand smells, and it was so dark in there I had to light a lamp to carry with me. Stepping through that door, I almost gasped. The room was round and not that large, not more than 25 feet across, but it gave me the whim-whams nonetheless. I almost bolted back out for saner places. Among the previous menagerie of hoo-ha, the walls were lined with what looked like tall, narrow glass and iron cabinets about a foot or two set between them. In the lamplight, the brass handles and knobs gleamed as bright as gold, and I might have told myself my eyes were playing tricks on me. I stepped further into the room, and the door slammed shut behind me. My meager little light flickered and almost went out as I reminded myself this 
was the librarian's turf, his inner sanctum, and I was his man. There was nothing here to get the shimmies about. Not really. The first few cabinets were empty. I peeked inside and saw gears and pulleys and wires and hoses big and small leading back into the wall. It was the damnedest thing and I had no idea what they could be used for or why the librarian wanted me to see them. The next cabinet I came to answered some of those questions. There was a fella inside, white as a ghost and standing there propped up and all hooked up to those gizmos and hoses and mechanical whatnots. I'd never seen anything like it, and the bile rose in my throat. I almost heaved. There was a sluggish yellow ooze making its way along one of those hoses into the fella's backside, and another one carrying something green and just as vile away from him back into the wall. There was a couple more like that, and just when I thought I was getting used to it all, whatever it was, I saw something that made my bowels want to drop through my drawers, and I cried out and ran to the next cabinet. It was Brenda, the girl I had a fancy on until Martine came back into the picture, the girl that ran the library topside some days, and who had a mean crossbow that, according to a gin I knew, never missed its mark. She was trussed up like the other fellows, with them hoses snaking in and out of her, as she just stood there and looked to be asleep. What I spotted next made me forget all about Brenda, standing there trussed up bigger than life in the last cabinet in the row, eyes closed like he was taking himself a beauty nap, was the librarian. My eyes jerked open and I started coughing like I was about to spit up a lung. I couldn't breathe. My nose and mouth was filled with some kind of gas. All I could see was fog or mist as I stuck out my hand and hit glass, felt it give way and break. I was in one of those tall cabinets. The wires and hoses jimmied into the wall and protruding out of my skin in a dozen places. I heard myself roar in protest from someplace far away inside my head as I stumbled and fell into a pair of strong arms. Not sure how much later I opened my eyes and the librarian was bending over me, wiping my face with a wet rag. I puked myself, and I could see the look of disgust on his austere features. I put my hand up and got a real shocker and almost passed out again. I was white. I mean, yeah, I was white already. I had been all along. Pasty-faced and pale, even for a blanc, Maurice had always said with his elbow on my ribs, but now I was white like snow, like a corpse in water for a month, white like, white like the librarian himself. I propped myself onto my elbow and opened my mouth to say something. No idea what, but he put a finger to my lips and shushed me. Where do we begin, Mr. Enfield? Where do we begin? The librarian sighed and shoved a shot of strong drink into my hand. I tossed back the fiery contents in a gulp and stared at him. For once, speechless. You must know. He straightened up and began to pace the room, his hands behind his back. Surely you understand that each time you cross a new threshold into the unknown, you are chained. 
altered in ways you cannot at first comprehend. He turned to look at me. So far, so good. I'm with you. Straight on to Sunday and no looking back. That's old Frankie Boy's motto. I tried to smile. He chuckled softly, (laughs) then continued. Very good, Frank. Very good. That's why you have done so extraordinarily well in these matters. You have been changing subtly, not so subtly, and in ways that can never be undone. You do understand that. Yeah, sure. You know me. I got a hunger for this stuff in my belly. Have ever since I was a tyke. I ain't no greenhorn here. You know that. I kind of bristled, knowing there were times when I was in a scrape on the librarian's capers, but I always finished the job. Never came back empty-handed with my tail between my legs. Indeed. You've made an excellent showing of yourself always. But two recent adventures in particular have shoved you over a more treacherous and challenging terrain than usual, and in ways that continue to unfold, as it were. I refer, of course, to your journey with Coyote, and this more recent business with my avian associates when they saw fit and without my counsel to drag you out of our more usual byways and into the before times where you were touched by the very salts themselves, and therefore you... He paused and looked away, and I gulped. I'd never seen him like this, and it made my hackles rise and my skin crawl. The librarian, at a loss for words, the librarian hesitant about anything under the sun... No, sir. Somehow, I knew things might have derailed a bit on this road show through the strange, and there'd been a slight detour in the itinerary. The geezers were the ones that had steered us there without so much of a buy-your-leave. I get it. I tried to muster the old Frank Enfield bluster, the old take-it-off-the-cuff-with-a-wink. The librarian shot me a glance, and I nodded. Yeah, it's all making sense now. Maybe like never before. Dead, ain't I? You, you're dead too, and I'm guessing you've been dead all this time, and I just wasn't scratching that itch in my belly like I should have been. Sure, I knew it. I just didn't want to know it. Now I'm dead too, just like you. And the geezers, the boss man of the crows, he's the one to blame. Or thank, however that works. Well, I must hand it to you, Mr. Enfield. You figured it out, and that saved me a lot of grief. How does that sit with you, knowing you are among the, well, walkers between the plains, as I like to call us? Undead? Well, that sounds so much like vampires or such things that skulk about in the dark and sleep in coffins. (laughs) His voice boomed it sort of put me at ease. I don't rightly know just how it sits. What I do know, and will tell you for free, is I asked for it. Set myself up for it every time by barreling headlong into all this with no breaks and hankering for more. I'm signed up, signed on, and signed in for the duration. All that noise. I got no choice. Can't whine about it now. So I guess I just take it as it comes. Figure it out as I go make sense of it as I need to. And Brenda? Yes, I'm afraid so. 
we've been here for a very long while, you see, and before this pleasant little burg, Brenda, my first protege, and I traveled to great many places. But there is plenty of time for storytelling later. I'm afraid I have a very important caper for you if you're up to it. He eyed me carefully and nodded with satisfaction when I grinned and turned on the old Frankie boy charm. Very good. Now, what do you know about that old miscreant, Alistair Crowley? Crowley, he was some kind of magician into that Egyptian business. Masons and all that formal claptrap. Died a couple years back, didn't he? I recalled the name and having read a couple of his books in my ne'er-do-well youth. It wasn't exactly in my line, being reared in the way of the black juju queen as I was, and suckled on bayou water and old moonshine as a pup. But I knew his formula. You had to know a bit of everything in this business. Well, we need to cover a number of things rather quickly, I'm afraid, because as usual, there's no time for leisurely study. In his book Moonchild, passed off as a work of fiction, thinly veiled, Crowley and cohorts undertook a lengthy and complex ritual over a period of some months for the purpose of calling down a powerful spirit to inhabit the unborn child of a member of their party. A spirit that would embody a very specific set of traits. A spirit they presumed would be eager to do their bidding. Uh, that's right. Martine read that book. Never got around to it myself. Well, by all accounts, they were quite successful in their endeavors, if with mixed results. The work of various schools outlined the relative ease with which such an act might be brought to fruition and the nature of its intended uses. There are always receptacles into which one might place their magical eggs for gestation and suitable adults might always be found, willing or otherwise, to avail their bodies and minds for such a purpose. Now, as it happens, there was a very unique alignment of genius that manifested on stage in Paris on May 29th, 1913. I know, I know, ancient history, but reward me with your patience, Frank, and I will indulge you your questions. Anywho, no less a cadre of notables than the veritable Igor Stravinsky along with his peer Sergei Diaglev and the Katamite Vaslav Nijinsky in tow conspired to create one of the most legendary works of art ever produced. No insult intended to Katamites everywhere, but it was well known in the circles germane that Diaglev's keen appreciation for Nijinsky was his magical acumen on the stage and between the sheets, and not for his intellectual prowess. <laughs> the result was the greatest premier ballet of all time, Le Sacre du Printemps, The Rite of Spring, which confronted audiences that fateful night with the specter of pagan sacrifice, that of a young girl. It was not so much the sacrifice itself, but the frenzied orgy that Nijinsky's utterly bizarre choreographic wizardry wrought on the stage that caused the calamitous riot that ensued in the aisles as the audience took to the streets in their horror. Now, it would be absurd for us to presume that Stravinsky and Diaglev set about with intent to manifest such devilry through the hapless Nijinsky. But clearly, there was one among the audience, besides myself, 
who recognized what had indeed occurred. The rite of spring had spontaneously produced exactly the rite and result the storyline foretold. It was this other who took it upon himself to procure a copy of Stravinsky's original score and annotate it towards his own monstrous purposes. The librarian paused to pour himself a brandy and me another stiff belt of whiskey, which I tossed back. Glad I could still enjoy such luxuries. So, let me get this straight. What they did on the stage did the thick real-time, and some joker in the audience got a hold of it and rejigged it to conjure up his own, what'd you call it, Moonchild? Why, yes, I believe that's precisely what I just described. Just making sure. Just making sure. He always bristled every time I spit back what he just told me in plain English. Well, my dear Frank, you are tasked with retrieving this accursed score and its worrisome annotations and returning it to me. Now, you are in luck as luck would have it because I can tell you exactly where the score will be and when. Really? That's a breeze. I was looking forward to an easy one this time. Perhaps, perhaps not. You see, this is the first time the rite has been performed at Théâtre des Champs-Élysées on the precise date, May 29th in Paris, since that original catastrophic premiere. And impossibly, it is to be produced by an amateur company and completely unknown producer of little observable means. I have been wanting this score out of circulation for some time, and now I have it in my sights. You, my dear Mr. Enfield, shall be the sword of my vengeance upon any who would pervert the work of the gods Stravinsky and Diaglev, and the brilliant familiar Nijinsky, to personal and nefarious ends. Are you, Mr. Enfield, up to the task and prepared to don fancy dress of an evening? Hmm? <laughs> Paris, Théâtre des Champs-Élysées. The place was as out of this world as any haint shack or juju parlor I'd ever set foot in. Dozens of posh swells dripping in their finery stared me down, their eyes crawling over me as I strode through their turf. They knew I didn't belong there, knew I wasn't one of them, never would be. I felt the reassuring squeeze of a hand on my arm and turned looking into the laughing eyes of the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen. She was why they noticed me in the first place. And while the eyes glared at me with a thousand questions, or so it seemed to me, those same eyes drank her in like pure mana from heaven. A vision, and yards of midnight taffeta and pearls. Her jet black hair coiled elaborately in a knot on the top of her head, with a small jeweled dagger holding it all in place. The choker at her throat, worked in tiny diamonds, obsidian, and rubies, flashed in the pale gold light. With the veve, the sigil of power of the Baron Samdi, her patron. Easy, baby. Martin's gotcha. Her voice was a purr, brushing my ear with her lips as we took our seats. Her eyes danced with the champagne we'd had before leaving the hotel, and her perfume, made by some French dame, Coco something, was all the magic I needed to relax and remember that I owned this joint, that old Frank Enfield owned any damn place he chose to set foot in. 
We took our seats, and Martine handed me a program. It was all in French, but I knew what it said. Le Sacre du Printemps, the Rite of Spring. This is why we were here, here in Paris. And here at the swanky theater on the Champs-Élysées, to watch a bunch of Janes and Jokers jump around in weird get-ups to a bunch of even weirder music, if that's what they called it. I knew to keep my yap shut on account of Martine loved this music. It was one of her favorites. She'd seen it performed in places large and small, in grand halls and shabby joints from New Orleans to Manhattan, and seen the ballet, too. Martine hadn't begged me to come on this caper. She'd informed me in no uncertain terms that she was tagging along, that I'd never make it through highbrow society without her and her French speaking in fancy ways. And it was true enough. Not that I ever needed any excuse to spend time with my best girl. You got it, Frankie? You betcha, doll. Got it right here. I patted my breast pocket. It was the original score to this thing I'd fished out of the trunk underneath the sleeping girl's bed the night before, with all the notes and ciphers and a whole other layer of something else besides. And that something else was why we were here. I sat there trying not to fidget. Martine's fingers entwined with mine to keep me centered, to keep me here in my seat so I didn't up and fly away, maybe even for real. I listened to the racket that passed for music, enjoying the delighted little smile on my girl's lips, and happy we could be seeing this thing together, even if it was one nasty piece of business that brought us here. The dancers started jumping around like they was half-crazed, and I remembered this was supposed to be mimicking some rite or ritual, and I suppose it made some crazy kind of sense. Back when this thing first appeared, it caused quite a ruckus, and people had gone running damn near for their very lives out into the night. Turns out they were right, and I was here to do something about that, even if it was too late for the girl I'd stole this thing from. The same girl was cavorting around on stage like a banshee as the wailing of the music stabbed the air violently like an orgy of hex drums doing their worst. The girl's body twisted so hideously I had to turn away as I heard lots of voices in the crowd around me gasp and a few more jump up in rapturous applause. Martine and I sat staring at the stage. Never in my life had I seen anything like it not out in public anyway. My girl glanced at me from the corner of her eye and I squeezed her hand. It reminded us both of when the Baron rode her and when Arzuli Freda rode her and all the congregation back home in New Orleans gave themselves up to what was come upon us in the fray of strange ecstasies that followed. Something was happening here all right and Martine clenched my arm, her nails biting into my flesh like a cat's claws. I see it seeing in her eyes the flash of recognition as the crowd around us started swaying and moaning. Nobody said a word, like they were in some kind of daze, and I suppose they were. Overhead, I saw the air shimmer and start melting down out of the ceiling like some kind of slow-motion waterfall, oozing back and forth like a big old oil slick on the Mississippi pulling up and eddying in little swirls of greasy color across the stage and pouring down over the girl, the girl from the hotel room, the sacrifice in this shindig. I looked at Martine and saw the Baron's diamond veve now flashed red like blood and fire, and 
pulsed like a preternatural heart in her throat. The Baron was watching over her. I hoped he had an eye out for me too, or my new status and things would carry my day. I squinted my eyes to see through the pale light and the pulsing swirls above the stage. Then I saw it. Something was coming down, crawling right out of the mists and heading for the girl who just stood there, her arms raised over her head like she was hot for it and couldn't wait to take it in her arms. The every sound in the place died away as suddenly as it started and there was a moment of deathly silence. I saw people start running past us up the aisles. The whole audience moved as one towards the exit, screaming, somebody puking his guts out nearby, people collapsing, people getting trampled on. I wanted to jump up and run to the stage and save the girl, banish whatever was ravaging her, but Martine held my arm fast. She just stared at the girl, eyes locked on the stage. She just sat there and stared at Martine. She was in one of her trances, eyes burning, her breath low in her chest. The Baron was on her. I could see that for damn sure, and if he was here, even just the tip of his pinky finger, he was calling the shots. The girl continued her crazed dance, if that's what you'd call it. Her body arched backward at a hideous impossible angle, and I heard the cracking of bones and then blood appeared from somewhere and ran down her legs, down her arms and pulled on the floor. But she wasn't done yet. Not by a long shot. What was left of her body shambled and jumped over the stage, destroyed elongated limbs dangling and jerking around. It looked like a busted daddy long legs performing for an arch sadist. The air around us crackled and liked to about suffocate me. Still, Martine sat there, my arm in a deadlock that I knew was the power of the Baron, and not my girl. I heard a low moan behind me, and started to turn and see if any of the audience was left behind, maybe passed out and needing our help. Don't look at him. Keep your eyes on the girl. Just follow my lead, you know why. I knew it was the Baron talking, and I just nodded, wondering at the sounds welling up behind me moaning of some kind of perverse ecstasy of a sort I didn't even want to think about. That made me want to ram a bunch of nails into my ears. Anything to make it go away. It was the sorcerer. He was watching the show he'd called up with the girl he was making a big star, just like he promised. The girl was almost spent now. There was no way anything human, anything natural was still animating that shivering blood-soaked corpse cavorting all over the stage. Still, the moans behind me continued, seemed to reach some kind of disgusting crescendo, and then stopped. The tension in the room broke. Martine let go of my hand, and I jerked around to see a dark figure in a posh suit, one of them top hats, leap up from somewhere in the seats behind us and make a dash for the door. In pursuit of him was another figure in a dark suit and a top hat. It was the Baron Samdi. He'd appeared in the flesh the moment he released Martine. He overtook the fleeing sorcerer, colliding with him to the sound of bones being crushed. One long hideous scream broke off with a loud thump on the floor and a groan and a death rattle. Martine herself was in motion, running towards the stage where she leapt up and rushed to what was left of the girl. As God is my witness, 
Martine laid hands on that bloody ruined corpse. It shuddered and convulsed under her ministrations and then somehow staggered to its feet, whole and unharmed. The girl herself once again, dazed and none the worse for the wear it seemed, had just seen the power of the Baron in action once again, taking one life and making whole again another, and this time left me truly speechless. Come on, we gotta get her home. She needs to rest under protection. Martine was herself again, with no trace of the Baron on her. After what seemed like just minutes and the blur of a cab ride racing through town, we'd got the kid back to her hotel room, where she fell immediately into a deep sleep. Martine and I set up the hex marks all around the room and then sat by the fire keeping some kind of strange vigil against the mists of shadows that gathered and congealed outside the windows, then sped away. Okay, so let me see that thing. She snapped her fingers and used that command voice of hers on me. I knew exactly what she meant, so I fished the right of spring score out of my coat pocket, and she scooped it up in her small gloved hand, eyeing it closely, running her fingers lightly over its surface, smelling the ink and who knows what else, even darting the tip of her tongue over it here and there. She closed her eyes and just held it for a few minutes while I looked away. You really got yourself mixed up in a fix this time, haven't you, baby? She set the score on the table and fixed me with her eyes in a way that always made me squirm. Me and Maurice, we got to talking after you left the quarter, and that big set you out in the bay with old Amidi's place. Oh yeah, the Baron let me in on all of it. You think he wouldn't? She was hot as a firecracker, worried mostly, hopefully about me, but about something else too. What do you take me for, Frankie? What, what do you mean, doll? Don't doll me, not now. Not like this, when we got important things to parley out. What, you think I'm just some floozy you take up with when you breeze through town? Her voice was rock hard, and I knew the command voice when I heard it. Oh, baby, no. I grabbed for her hand. You know better than that. Then why treat me like that? You know damn good and well when it comes to Hex and Conja, I could cook you and Maurice both up and serve you for Sunday dinner and still have time to bake a pie. She locked me with her eyes, and I wasn't sure if it was her or... If the Baron Samdi was still in there, giving her a bluster, and then seeing it was all her. I got just three simple questions for you, and I better get three damn good answers. What you doing up there in Hudson, Frankie? And how come you look real dead to me? How'd you get mixed up with a moon child? And who the hell is the librarian? Oh, and yeah, one for the road. Just when was you planning on introducing us? She released me and looked back toward the right of spring score. I slumped in my chair, and I saw her with a whole new load of respect. She'd grown a lot more in my years away from the quarter than I'd realized. Of course, I'd always known she was one powerful conjure woman, no doubt about that. Seen her in action too many times for that. She had her mama's blood come down pure and undiluted from Marie Laveau herself. She got rode regular by her patron, the Baron Samdi, the man himself and she'd been weaned on the way by the same one as did me and my old partner Doug Cartwright and her baby brother Maurice. But I guess, I guess I was a dimwit to think she'd stick to her Louisiana ways when it came to this stuff. I hadn't, and I couldn't blame Martine for wanting in on the action. I didn't say anything as she picked up the score for the right, rolled it up, and tucked it into her handbag. She walked over to the bed 
to check on the girl. You better come here. Her voice was soft. Yeah? What is it, baby? The girl's dead. She couldn't have survived after what he put her through. He busted her mind up real good. We couldn't save her. We never could. Now we gotta get out of here. The gendarmes will be at my door any minute now. We gotta scram. And I'm guessing you need to get this thing back to your librarian friend right away. She patted her handbag. And I'm coming with you. Then we were headed back stateside. I had no damn idea how the librarian would cotton to me showing up on the door of his lair with a friend in tow. But I suppose, like everything else in this haint show rodeo of a life of mine, I'd find out soon enough. <laughs>